Welcome to Navigating UK Merger Control, a podcast from DLA Piper. My name is Sarah Smith and I'm a partner in the firm's competition practice. This podcast is aimed at those encountering the UK merger control regime for the first time or becoming reacquainted with it. So far this series, we've been joined by present and former members of the competition and markets authorities who've given us the regulator's perspective on the UK regime. In this episode, the third in our series, we're delighted to be joined by our colleagues in the DLA corporate team who will be talking to Alex Cameling, a partner in our UK competition team. They'll be putting merger control in the context of the wider transaction, talking about how merger control affects corporate transactions, including the impact on deal timetables, conditionality, break fees, and of course, the CMA's unique hold separate regime. Alex will be talking to Karen Kirshner and Chris Arnold. Karen is a legal director in our corporate team who deals mainly with public bids, that is takeovers of listed companies. And Chris, a partner also in our corporate team, deals mainly with private bids, and they'll be talking about the slightly different ways in which merger control impacts each of those types of transactions. I am joined by my corporate colleagues, Chris Arnold and Karen Kishner here, and we're just going to be talking about UK merger control. As part of this podcast series, we've been talking about UK merger control, but obviously you can't have any merger control if you don't have a merger transaction. So how does merger control figure in private and public deals in the UK? I'll start on this one today. In public deals, mergers are covered by the takeover code and are then also sort of supervised by the UK takeover panel. What normally happens is that people do a desktop analysis of what merger clearances may or may not be required before they kind of publicly announce a transaction because there's very limited conditionality that you can have once you have announced. So what you do try to do is to sort of limit the amount of conditionality that you have around merger regulatory clearances. Chris, what about in the private sector? Yeah, I suppose similar on private M&A deals, the first step is obviously to try and identify whether any mandatory and suspensory approvals are required. If they are, then clearly the M&A transaction cannot complete until that approval has been obtained. And so obtaining that approval has to be a condition to completion under the SPA. If you do, and as an aside, if you do have a competition condition as a CP to completion, then that can lead to requests from the buyer for lots of other conditionality totally unrelated to competition approval. So it can result in less deal certainty for a buyer, irrespective of the competition piece, but it's pretty similar really to the public M&A context. Now, one of the things we've been hearing about is obviously the UK merger control regime is a voluntary one. So there's no fines if you choose not to notify and get clearance, which is in contrast to most countries across the globe where it's mandatory to pre-file if you hit certain thresholds. But despite this voluntary nature, basically merging parties can still treat the CMA process as a condition to closing, just like any other mandatory jurisdiction, can't they? What do you think, Chris? Yeah, on a private M&A deal, they definitely can. It's all sort of subject to commercial negotiation and whether the seller will agree to a condition. Because obviously, as you say, it isn't mandatory and dispensary. So it would be open to the purchaser to proceed without the condition. So if you do agree to have a condition, then it would be treated in the same way as any mandatory and dispensary approval. 
There is a, a question and there's a, there's a lot of area of debate is around what that condition looks like. Is this approval obtained during a phase one review? Does a buyer need to go to phase two? At what point if things are not progressing as the buyer would want? So if it looks like it's going to phase two, does the buyer have the right to walk away from the deal, et cetera, et cetera, but all for commercial negotiation? And then obviously in the SPA, whatever condition you have, if you have not obtained that by an agreed specified long stop date in the SPA, then the parties would be free to walk away or or could extend the time if they so wanted. So in short, yes, you can follow that approach in a private M&A deal. Karen, what about a public takeover code one? Sort of similar. The parties generally debate as to whether voluntary filings should be a condition to the takeover. I'm sort of taking a bit of a step back on a merger that's governed by the takeover code. The panel will not really allow a bidder to step away from the transaction by invoking a condition unless it really has a material impact on the bidder. So to the extent that you have a voluntary filing, just because, for example, it takes longer than expected, that would not be a reason for a bidder to not complete on a transaction. And that therefore kind of also leads to quite a lot of debate around long stop dates on takeovers. Normally, without having much merger control issues, you would sort of set that within six months of the announcement of a firm intention to make a bid. Obviously, where you do have both mandatory or voluntary filings, there's a bit more of a debate around what that long stop date needs to be. And you would normally set it so that you have given yourself enough time to obtain all of the clearances that you are likely to require, plus a little bit extra to sort of um, give a little bit of give in the timetable. But as said, just because a regulator imposes certain conditions, for example, to a merger, that in and of itself would not be sufficient for a bidder to invoke a condition and not complete on a takeover. Yes. And I think in addition, obviously, to the whole timing considerations and everything like that, I think you sort of touched on it, but sort of the dynamics of potential remedies being imposed. I mean, and how does that work in a private deal, Chris? I think that's the thing. I think right at the outset, it's important for both sides to try and understand what the competition authority's view of the transaction is likely to be, what likely remedies may be, whether any conditions would be attached to getting competition approval. Because Obviously, from a seller's perspective, if there is a mandatory and suspensory competition condition or if they agree to a CMA condition, they want to have as much certainty as possible that the deal is going to get to completion and that they're not going to sign a deal and then have it fall away and and terminate between sign and close. So they will want to put as many obligations on the buyer as possible to obtain that approval. And so what is hotly negotiated is the extent that the buyer has to go to to obtain that approval? Do they need to accept a hell of high water clause? Do whatever is required to obtain competition approval? Uh, Do they need to divest parts of their existing business, parts of the business they're buying? And having a clear understanding and trying to get both sides sort of competition lawyers to sort of almost try and agree what they think the likely outcome is going to be can then mean that actually you can tailor that clause to something which actually the buyer will look at and think, yes, I still want to do the deal if I have to dispose of X or if I have to do Y. What you don't want to do is to have people with no real idea what they may be required to do have an absolute obligation in an SBA to basically sell everything and anything to just get the approval through. So that assessment of what the likely impact is going to be, and then their own internal assessment by a buyer is whether that 
would still make the deal commercially viable is important because then you can sort of hopefully go through that. And then, as I've mentioned before, I think the other aspect is how far you need to go down the merger control process. Obviously, not a merger control expert, but I know on a number of approvals or applications, filings, you can get a good idea very quickly how the competition authorities are going to look at things and whether actually this is just a fight which you're never really going to win or not. So that's it really on the M&A, private M&A side. Yeah, I mean, I think UK, just like most jurisdictions, does have a sort of a phase one and a phase two. And a phase two adds considerably to the longer timetable and creates uncertainty for the businesses while they're subject to that. But Karen, what about the takeover panel's reaction to these kind of things? So, yeah, so similarly as on private transactions, you would have a debate about what kind of processes you have to go through, whether there should be a higher hell water clause in the cooperation agreement, what would be acceptable levels of remedies to be accepted by the bidder and so on. And it can range from, you know, put in all of your submissions as soon as possible and accept any reasonable remedies that any merger authority imposes on you, which is obviously a little bit more onerous for the bidder. If the bidder tried to do something along the lines of like, well, it it would have to be, you know, satisfactory to us or, you know, we wouldn't want to do X, Y and Z, then that is also a discussion to be had with the panel. They're quite pragmatic about these sorts of things, but they do want to have as much certainty as possible for the target. It's really in nobody's interest to have a prolonged process with an uncertain outcome hanging over a publicly listed company. Now, we've started already touching on it, but, you know, who really gets to determine the scope of the CMA merger condition um, and what will they consider? I suppose on a private M&A perspective, it's really ultimately determined by the bargaining power of the parties. So for a seller, if there's a really competitive sales process, they've got a number of interested parties, deal certainty will clearly be absolutely key for them and they will be making clear to bidders that if you have any conditionality, that's seriously going to harm your bid because they will want, again, the comfort that if they sign a deal, then it will get to completion. And similarly, if there is a bidder that is very interested in a target, it's a trade bidder, knows that it may have some merge control issues, some CMA issues, but other bidders, some private equity houses are unlikely to have those issues. And so actually from a a sort of bid certainty perspective or deal certainty perspective, they're sort of harmed in the face of other bidders. They will want to try and make their deal and and their offer look as deliverable as possible. So that may be including Helen High Waters, offering break fees, agreeing to various divestments. I think it depends on, on the sort of negotiating power and the strength of the sales process. On the flip side, if a bidder knows that really they're the only show in town, then they've got much greater bargaining power and may well look and put on pretty low obligations on themselves that they have to do to satisfy the conditions and have that conditionality there. I think the thing to remember, though, is it's not always a question of, oh, the buyer has won this round of negotiations because it's got a wide condition and low obligations to satisfy it because no buyer will want to sign a deal and then not to get to completion anyway. So the analysis is still very important to understand, will they get it ultimately through the merge control authorities and what will they need to do to sort of get that approval? And so 
you don't want clients thinking, oh, we can just deal with this sort of after we've signed. They need to work out whether it's they want to go to the cost and expense of, of proceeding with the deal and whether it would still be viable or not. And I think the other thing, and I've seen this sort of on deals before as well, I think when you are negotiating and there are serious or real competition concerns and divestment or some form of remedy is likely, what you don't want to do in the SPA is have a condition saying we will do or, or an obligation we will do whatever we have to do up to selling x y and z or we'll sell up to x percent of our business because i'm sure they're not as bad as this but if competition authorities see something in an spa you would imagine that may well be their starting point as to what they will request and so i know there are routes that you can have side letters to sort of try and um, explain what you mean by taking various steps in an spa so that you take out that risk but yeah in short all of these points are just really down to the negotiating power of the parties yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The SPA, a copy of it is part of the notification and you, you don't want to signpost the potential issues for a regulator. But um, Karen, I think you alluded to it that in a public takeover transaction, obviously, is not just the bargaining power of the parties that determines the scope of the CP. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, because as I already mentioned, actually invoking a condition to a takeover needs to be run past a panel and they won't really entertain that until there's a real material impact on the bidder or if there would be like criminal offences being committed or so on. So, but before you do go to 2.7 days, as I already mentioned, the people generally do quite a detailed analysis of where they need to file what and what the potential outcome might be of these filings and what potential remedies could look like. Obviously, we don't have an SPA in a takeover bid, but the condition itself is sort of set out in the firm intention to make an offer announcement. And then generally, especially if there is protracted merger clearances processes involved, the parties will enter into what's called a cooperation agreement. And both the 2.7 announcement, as it's called, and the cooperation agreement are also publicly available. So similarly, on a private deal, you wouldn't want to sort of signpost what you think that the remedies could be. So you generally keep those conditions as well as the cooperation agreement and the hell water or hell, <laughs> the hell or high water clause um, relatively anodyne in the cooperation agreement. Um, and we have had on a number of occasions, we've also entered into those side letters where parties were a little bit more concerned about a, a particular jurisdiction, which wouldn't have been prohibitive for the transaction overall, but which might have led to the divestiture of part of a business of one of the parties. And again, there is a little bit of bargaining at the beginning of a transaction before the 2.7 goes out. And there's always a discussion around who should bear the risk of the process and what is reasonable to accept in terms of remedies and so on. But uh, on the whole, as you know, as discussed, you keep these clauses relatively anodyne in a takeover process. Now, because the UK is one of the few jurisdictions where merger control filings are voluntary, it is possible for the parties to decide to do the deal without having it as a pre-closing condition, but there is a possibility of them seeking guidance from the CMA to still try and reduce the competition risk. Chris, have you sort of seen that happening? Uh, yeah, so I think people can submit briefing papers to the CMA after an SPA has been signed, but not before. And that can lead to a, we have no further questions, we don't intend to call it in, but doesn't prohibit the CMA or prevent the CMA from calling the transaction in the future. But I think it's fair to say it would be pretty 
unlikely and would presumably arise if actually all the facts in the briefing paper weren't quite there or there was significant objections in the market or whatever. So a briefing paper, if you get the we have no further questions is a pretty good response and people can proceed. However, if you are reaching out to the CMA, you're giving them a briefing paper, you would still probably want some form of conditionality in your SPA. Because if you don't, then if you send them a briefing paper and they say, oh, this is pretty concerning. Here's a, um, let's don't integrate the business and, and you need to, you need to get our approval. We're opening an investigation. That's not a great place to be. So, I think there is a question as to whether you sort of go through the sort of halfway house of you submit a briefing paper, which is obviously a lot shorter than a filing, a few pages, and then you sort of have a period in which the CMA can come back with their responses and you have a condition in the SPA saying that you will complete if the CMA confirms within X weeks that they have no further questions. And if they don't say no further questions, then I suppose you would either then renegotiate and see how you, whether you still want to do the deal or you would be able to terminate the SPA. And so the briefing paper, I think only really works where the competition analysis is pretty clear or is good that actually it's unlikely that the CMA will call in the transaction and actually a briefing paper will be enough. I've got a deal at the moment where there was discussion around a briefing paper, but the sort of analysis and view was actually the CMA will want to investigate further, even if ultimately at the end of a phase one, it may determine there isn't an issue. Just on the facts, there's really a little bit too much of a competition concern to get the CMA happy on a few pages. So if there are real competition concerns, then I don't think a briefing paper really helps you, but it is a possibility. Yeah, no, it's certainly a route. And I think, I mean, for those that are not familiar with it, the key difference between a briefing paper and a formal notification is that the briefing paper is a confidential procedure with the CMA. So it doesn't get to ask third parties in the marketplace what their views are on a transaction. And that's why all you get from the CMA is a no further questions from us. But if someone complains about the transaction, we may still investigate. But then in a, in a public deal, Karen, do you think, have you sort of seen briefing papers being used? Not very recently and not very much because sort of on a similar basis as Chris sort of says, like if there are any concerns, they don't really assist in a great way. And as I already mentioned a couple of times, invoking conditions to a takeover requires the panel consent and they only do it if there's anything materially wrong. So there isn't really much point in having a condition based on a briefing paper. You would kind of assist having that kind of conditionality in the 2.7 announcement. So I think we do sometimes have debates around whether at all to make a voluntary filing, especially if the risk is relatively low. And I've seen that go both ways. But yeah, the where people just want to do the briefing paper, the argument would be just in that case, don't have the conditionality and just take the risk on that. So I guess in summary, in the UK specifically, one can either address the CMA risk by making a deal conditional on actual formal CMA clearance or a favourable response to a briefing paper, but the latter one doesn't actually wholly eliminate the risk, given that there's still a power to call it in. So what sort of strategic considerations does that throw up in, in the UK system for a, an M&A transaction? Chris? I think it leads to another area of negotiation and debate. Obviously, if you have a mandatory approval requirement, there's absolutely no negotiation around whether you need to have a CP or not. It has to be there. So it's pretty straightforward. 
Obviously, as the CMA isn't mandatory and you can complete and take the risk of the deal being called in, that is likely to be a seller's starting point and saying that you don't need to have this approval. So just proceed and continue. And I think it's really important for buyers that they actually understand all of this at the outset of a transaction, because I've seen, and thankfully when I was on the sell side, I've seen transactions where parties, a buyer and seller have been talking about a deal, they've negotiated heads of terms, and the seller has been alive to all of this and said, you will not, and you will take all CMA competition risk, and there will be no condition to completion. The buyer has agreed to that before they've appointed any any lawyers or any competition counsel. And only after they have, do they realize, oh, actually, well, this is a bit of a problem. We've got some serious competition concerns. And actually on, on the deal that I'm thinking of, we ended up completing the deal. The CMA did call in the transaction and did require some divestments following the successful close. So making for a buyer, making sure that they fully understand what they're agreeing to, what the risks are, are just very important. And then as I've sort of already touched on, I think just because of the voluntary nature, it just really does make the competition analysis so important at the outset, like just making sure that everyone fully understands what the likely consequences are. Do you really need to have a condition or are the CMA not likely to be bothered by the transaction? Is it something which isn't likely to be called in? It doesn't have any real competition concerns. So I think the strategic thing is understanding at the outset what the risks are and then making sure that your commercial position reflects the risks and you understand what risks you are taking on if you're a buyer, if you proceed in one way. And I would very much echo that from a public takeover perspective as well. I think the real multi-jurisdictional analysis that gets done before we even go to a firm intention to make an offer announcement, the 2.7 is really, really important. I mean, most of the sort of scenarios that I've kind of been thinking about and talking about has been in the context of a recommended offer. So where actually, you know, the target and the bidder are going to be working together to get these submissions done and, and the clearances and obtained. Obviously, the dynamics are somewhat different when it's a hostile takeover. You know, there's even less conditionality in those circumstances. And and then it, it very much is the, the risk of the buyer. But they would then have tried to do as much as they can from publicly available sources to see what their risks are and where they think they might have to do filings. Obviously, again, in a recommended transaction, what you would have is you would have a, a clean team, <laughs> which basically is lawyers on both sides having access to potentially commercially sensitive information on both sides to sort of help really with the analysis and seeing, you know, what the risks are and where. You don't have that in a hostile, so there wouldn't be that information sharing, even if it's in a sort of clean team. And so, yeah, the risk is very much on the bidder in, in those sorts of circumstances. Now, I guess we've talked about sort of the CMA risk being that, you know, it does get called in and you potentially have remedies imposed or even it can be a prohibition. But one of the other unique features of the UK system is because the CMA can call in completed transactions, what they inevitably do is impose what is sort of colloquially referred to as a, a hold separate, but it formally it's called an initial enforcement order, which basically prohibits the merging parties from integrating their business while they investigate. 
Now, that obviously brings its issues as well. I mean, Chris, have you come across these wonderful hold separates? No, I have. I have come across them. And I mean, as you say, the impact is significant and huge on the business. So they're difficult to comply with. There's huge restrictions on what you can do with the business. You need separate management teams. You won't be able to integrate what you have just acquired into the wider buyer group, which clearly in most deals, uh, obtaining those synergies and carrying out integration is is absolutely critical to the, the sort of commercial viability of the deal until the CMA has completed its review. And, and that's obviously something which can go on for many months and so can really harm the business. And I think the other thing which I've seen is that the CMA don't differentiate between a share sale and an asset sale, which is where someone is just acquiring a set of assets and will still require a hold separate, which in some cases can effectively require you to appoint a new management team, which doesn't exist just to comply with the CMA's hold separate. So, which just, again, would make a deal totally unviable from a commercial perspective. So the hold separates are very significant, adds to time, there's huge costs involved, which have to be picked up by the buyer, by the, the client. And they really do need to be factored in when a client is considering whether to take the CMA risk and whether to proceed on a deal without without um, having a condition for CMA clearance or not. Karen, have you seen any of these hold separates being imposed in public deals? Not on any of my own, but uh, obviously there's been a very public example of that recently of the Veolia and Zeus transaction. And that resulted in a very lengthy hold separate from what I saw. And, um, you know, and they had to divest of themselves of, of, of large chunks of the UK business. And I mean, they were trying to defend it uh, quite vigorously. I've had a look through the sort of filings because obviously all of these things are then also made public. <laughs> so you can go on the government website or the CMA website and just uh, check out what people have offered up and so on. And I mean, it, it resulted in another sale in a multitude of billions that which obviously is highly unsatisfactory and quite, you know, it's probably not quite what they had in mind when they first merged back in 2000, I think. And then it's only just been resolved in November this year. So it's been a really long process for them. So it sounds like, you know, up front, I think both of you were sort of saying, you know, you need to do the merger control assessment up front and know what you're letting yourself in for. But you need to take into account, can you even manage a hold separate, depending on whether it's a share or an asset acquisition and who's being retained of the target business and things like that. And then obviously you need to take into account the actual competition risk on the substantive analysis, whether you're going to end up with remedies or not. Now, one of the things that we as practitioners have seen in the antitrust practice is an increase of in-depth merger reviews by the CMA. The CMA is one of the tougher regulators, I think, across the globe on merger control. And so we are starting to hear more about break fees. And that's where effectively a buyer is willing to pay some form of compensation if the deal doesn't actually go ahead and complete due to a failure of getting CMA clearance. Can you sort of give me a sort of a, a short idea of when buyers should be thinking about this and even agreeing to a break fee, Chris? Yeah, sure. And I, I suppose just uh, I suppose break fees from a seller's perspective have two benefits. Firstly, if the deal doesn't happen, then because of the merge control approval, then they will get paid some money. They will get paid the break fee. But then I suppose probably more importantly to them, they see that if there would be a requirement to pay a break fee, then that will incentivize the buyer to do what they can to obtain merge control approval. So 
I think in all circumstances, break fees are always hotly contested. And I think it's still pretty rare on private M&A deals. But a seller may well look for a break fee if, again, I think, as I mentioned before, if there's a bidder with significant competition concerns and they've got lots of other bidders who are interested who don't have those competition concerns, the seller's going to say, look, you need to make this deliverable. You need to make me want to go with you on this deal. And similarly, bidders, if they know that their competition assessment is a problem, and if they know that they need to put in a CMA condition or they need to have some other competition conditions which others will not have, and in some circumstances it could be as stark as some bidders may be able to say, we will sign a deal and complete simultaneously with you. And this bidder is saying, well, we can't because we've either need a CMA approval or we've got some mandatory and suspensory approvals in other jurisdictions. But don't worry, we will get this deal done and we will commit to pay you this break fee if we don't. And we'll also put in a hell of high water and we'll also agree to do whatever we need to do. I say there are ways of making a bid more appealing for a buyer. And then if you do agree a break fee, it's then, well, what is the amount of the break fee and how big is it? And again, that's heavily negotiated. Sometimes it's sort of limited to the costs and expenses incurred by the seller in doing the deal. And in other times, it can be a pretty significant number and amount to, again, give the seller that sort of certainty or comfort that actually you will proceed and you will proceed to completion. There are limitations on the size of break fees that listed companies can give, for example, and that can sort of sometimes be used as a bit of a proxy for private companies as well to argue as to the size of break fees. But again, in short, they're very heavily negotiated and and it all comes down to negotiating power. So what about break fees in public deals, Karen? So I have to laugh a little bit because um, they're extremely, extremely uncommon. And the reason for that is that under the takeover code, you are... Uh, there's a prohibition on what's called offer related arrangements. And that includes things like break fees. And um, basically the panel doesn't really like them at all. And you can have them in theory. I personally haven't come across one <laughs> at all where, you know, in, in extremely limited circumstances, for example, if the target is subject to a hostile bid and it wants to incentivize a white knight to come in and make a competing offer. As I said, extremely rare. I personally haven't seen any in recent times at all. If you do have them, there's also a, a limit on them. It has to be 1% of the aggregate value. That is also, again, under the takeover code. So arguably, whether they're really worthwhile giving or receiving is up for debate. What I have seen on very rare occasions is that sort of reverse break fee. But again, extremely uncommon and highly contested and you know very much debated amongst parties. Well, thank you, Chris and Karen. I mean, I think it's sort of a clear message is beware of UK merger control, take it into account, (laughs) think of it early on in the process so that both sides are aware of what it looks like, how long the deal will take to get clearance, whether it needs to get clearance at all. But um, there is much to be negotiated between the parties on this one, I gather. So thank you very much for your insights. Thank you very much, Karen, Chris and Alex, and thanks to you for listening. We hope that you have enjoyed this third episode of DLA Piper's series, Navigating UK Merger Control. Look out for episode four, in which we'll be leaving the UK and talking to Semin O, a German competition partner, about the contrast between the UK merger control system and the systems more typically found in Germany and other European countries. 